was planning on preaching on the subject, why should I? We've been in a um, sermon series for the last, well, I guess since early January on the spiritual gifts, and I was planning on doing a wrap-up today of that. Maybe we'll get to that sermon uh, some weeks from now, but because of the situation, I wanted to speak directly to where we're at um, and and just kind of reflect on where we're, where we're going here. So um, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Acts chapter 11. We'll be in Acts chapter 11, uh, verses 27 through 30 here in just a little bit. But first, let me tell you about Mr. Purdy. Mr. Sumter Purdy III uh, was an art collector, and he uh, was looking through some upcoming catalogs of art auctions, and he noticed that down in New Orleans, there was going to be some paintings that were going to be auctioned off. Um, it was part of the estate of a gentleman who had died, and the auctioneers were, he saw in there, it was this he recognized it as a painting called Pepper Pot. And Pepper Pot, we've got a picture of it for you here. And Pepper Pot was a picture painted by John Lewis Crimmel um, in 1811, I believe it was. Um, and while everybody else was uh, you know, excited about the Enlightenment era and, and that, that sort of painting and stuff, he wanted to capture real American life. And so here you have an African-American woman, and Pepper Pot was a type of soup. And they would use ox hooves and whatever other kind of meats or anything they could get that was just kind of scrap type stuff. They would throw it in this pot. They boil the water, throw in some potatoes, carrots, whatever they could find. It was just kind of a, a really cheap way to get some nutrition. And so she's selling this on the streets in Philadelphia. And so he painted a picture of this and called it Pepper Pot. Well, this painting has been lost. Um, it, nobody, it wasn't in any museums. It wasn't in any private collections, not that anyone knew. And so he's an art collector, and he sees this painting coming up in this auction in New Orleans, and he thinks, ah, well, there's that painting that nobody knew where it was. And so uh, he sees that the opening bid price is only a couple hundred dollars, and he knows it's worth much more than that. So he thinks to himself, well, it's worth a plane ticket down to New Orleans to see what's going on here, and just to see if it's even the real thing. And so he leaves Alexandria, Virginia, flies down to New Orleans for the, um, for the auction. He goes into the, into the home there where these things are going to be auctioned off, and he gets to look at the painting uh, before the auction starts, and sure enough, his eyes grow wide, and he realizes this is the real thing. This is not some fake. This is not some uh, you know, redone or anything. This is really the painting Pepper Pot. And uh, so he thinks to himself, well, I guess I'll try and bid on it. And so he ends up buying the painting for $1,200. Well, the auctioneer and the auction company was thrilled because they thought they were going to get a couple hundred dollars for this painting. Um, thrilled that somebody would pay as much as $1,200 for this thing. So um, Mr. Purdy goes back home to Alexandria, Virginia, and posts it uh, for sale for $385,000. Good return on investment, right? Well, the auctioneers were very upset by this. Um, they decided that they were going to sue Mr. Purdy for not telling them the real value and what they really had. And so they said, according to Louisiana law, we can do this. And so they sued him. Um, and when they went to court, uh, the judge made a ruling. Now, just as a quick uh, survey here, how many of us think that the judge ruled in favor of the auctioneers saying that, hey, Mr. Purdy should have told them the value of this? Uh, how many of you would say that? How many of you think that the judge ruled in favor of Mr. Purdy and said, this is ridiculous, throwing this out? All right, so many more of you on that end of the things. Well, you'll be happy to know that there is still a judge in America that has good sense, right? He said this is, and I quote, he said, this is some of the most outlandish or outrageous hypothetical stuff that we used to, cases that we used to see in law school. He said, this is completely preposterous. And Mr. Purdy himself said, I was supposed to stand up in the middle of the auction and tell everybody the value of the item that was being auctioned off and its true origin and it's what, it, what it truly was. He said, this is completely ridiculous. You say, well, Gordon, what does any of that have to do with um, coronavirus? And what does any of that have to do with, uh, with what we're doing today? Well, today we want to talk about a God who knows the future, who has a superior knowledge of the future, such that he can make better choices for us, better decisions for us uh, than we can make for ourselves. 
Our passage today comes from Acts chapter 11. Let me give you just a little bit of background about what's happening in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, a church is established in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea at a town called Antioch. Um, the senior pastor of that church is Barnabas. Uh, the associate pastor, one of five, is the Apostle Paul. Um, in Acts chapter 26, or chapter 11 and verse 26, it says, I'll read you 25, it says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and then verse 26, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas goes and recruits the Apostle Paul, in, who was then Saul, in Tarsus, in Paul's hometown, brings him to Antioch as one of the associate pastors. Can you imagine that church staff? You had Barnabas and Apostle Paul on staff. That church, pretty amazing place, right? And so there were great things that were happening there. And then we get to verse 27, and that's what we want to focus on today, okay? So that's our background. Then we land at verse 27. We're going to read 27 through 30. If you would, let's stand together and read from God's Word, Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 27. Here we go. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, you may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, let's kind of dive into these scriptures today. We'll begin at verse 27. It reads, Now in these days, prophets came down, it says, from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, if you think in your map, um, Antioch in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem is well south of there. You say, how is it that they could be going down, right, from Jerusalem, which is really up, to Antioch? Well, the thing is, Jerusalem is a point of high elevation in that region. And so anytime you're going away from Jerusalem, whether you're going east, west, north, or south, you're always heading down. So, yeah, the scriptures have this right. So it says they were heading down from Jerusalem to Antioch, to this church. It says there were prophets that were coming. Um, and then it says, verse 28, and one of them was named Agabus. You say, Gordon, you use that word prophet. What is a prophet? Well, in our spiritual gifts, it's been several weeks back, maybe a month or so ago, we actually looked at the spiritual gift of prophecy, and we talked about how the spiritual gift of prophecy is a gift where somebody can foretell the future with complete precision, with total accuracy. This is somebody who God communicates with directly, uh, through special revelation, and gives them special knowledge, gives them information about things that are transpiring, things that are coming up down the pipe. And so um, this, that's what a prophet is. You say, well, how do you know, you know, kind of like Moses. Moses was a prophet of God, and so Moses would go up on Mount Sinai, and he would have a conversation with God, and then he'd come back down the mountain, and he would interact with the people and tell them, hey, look, thus saith the Lord, this is what God instructed for us to know. And so you say, well, Gordon, how do I know that Moses didn't go up Mount Sinai just kind of twiddle his thumbs for a little while, draw on the sand, uh, watch a, some, some YouTube or something like that, and then come back down the mountain and say, thus saith the Lord. How do I know that Moses didn't just make that stuff up? Well, the Bible gives us a litmus test, a way to validate whether or not this person really is a true prophet of God. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 22 says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or does not come true, then that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. In that case, it says that the prophet has spoken presumptuously. That is that the prophet has jumped the gun, the prophet did not hear from God, this prophet does not hear from God. Um, so that's the litmus test. That's how, how they can validate whether or not a prophet is truly a prophet, um, that they have to be able to predict the future flawlessly. So that's the litmus test the Bible gives. And if that's not the case, then the Bible says that person is not someone that is a prophet. Well, was Agabus a prophet? Was he a true prophet of God? The scriptures here recognize him as such, and the church in Antioch believed him to be. Acts chapter 11, verse 28 says, 
And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold what the Spirit that there or by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. So this is his prediction. Agabus's prediction, the prophet of God, his prediction is that there will be a great famine over all of that part of the world. Verse 29, And so in response to this, the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, which is the territory of Israel. Verse 30, And they did so believing that this was really going to happen, sending it to the elders in Judea by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, otherwise known as, as we said a moment ago, Paul. You say, Gordon, what's wrong with the believers in Jerusalem? I mean, couldn't they anticipate this? Couldn't they take care of themselves? Well, the believers in Jerusalem, there's nothing wrong with them. Believers in Jerusalem, they were perfectly capable of working. But what's happened in Jerusalem is all the other Jewish people that have now got these folks that are Jewish Christians, right, that have become Christians, have become followers of Christ, the, the Jewish people who didn't convert to Christianity, who view these Christians as threats in Jerusalem, have said, we're not going to patronize your businesses. We're not going to call you when our pipes are leaking. Uh, we're not going to go to your shop when we need our oil change. And so because of that, the Christians living in Jerusalem are experiencing tremendous financial difficulty. Um, nobody's buying their stuff. Nobody's um, using their services. And so they're already uh, behind, uh, behind the eight ball, as they say. Um, and so they're already having difficulty. I mean, then, then you throw a famine in there, right? And these folks are really going to have a tough time. And so it's decided that the elders say, hey, you know what? We're going to take up an offering. And knowing that this is what's going to happen, Agabus has told us this is what's going to happen. We're going to take up an offering, and we're going to send that offering to help uh, the folks that are living in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem, uh, to get them through this period, this time. Um, so it's kind of like a pre-famine relief offering, if you would. Right? I know this is coming, and so therefore we're going to um, set up some storehouses um, anticipating that. All right, well, that's our story for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask the question. We ask every week around here, what difference does this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, come on. You know, you're talking about art collecting, and now we're talking about this guy named Agabus. What, how does that help me this week with all the stuff that's going on? Well, let's talk about that. It's a really great question. It makes a big difference. Um, the question is, did the famine happen? Did, uh, did Agabus' prediction actually come true? Well, look back at verse 28. The Bible says, in parentheses there, it says, the end of the verse, verse 28, it says, this took place, the famine that he predicted, took place in the days of Emperor Claudius. You say, Gordon, sometimes I wonder about you. Sometimes you're just so simple. Sometimes you're just so, you missed the most obvious things. I mean, of course the Bible's going to say that this really did happen. Of course the Bible's going to substantiate its own claim that it writes in here about Agabus, this true prophet of God. Of course the Bible's going to validate its own story. That's no proof of anything. Well, hold on just a second. The scripture's mentioned uh, right there in the days of Claudius. Claudius was the emperor. Got a picture of him here for you. Claudius was the emperor at this time from 41 to 54 AD, and, uh, and he was the, the Roman emperor at that time, leading up to Nero, who would come after him. And Claudius, um, archaeologists and historians, have identified five independent sources that confirm that this famine really did take place. That is five extra-biblical, outside of the Bible, um, sources that have identified this. For example, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, the Roman writer Herosius, the, Roman, or the Jewish historian Josephus, the church historian Eusebius, and in the annals of, king, or of Emperor Claudius himself. In Claudius' own records, he records that from his fifth to his seventh year of reign, that is from 46 to 48, my math's right, that was really simple math, right? 46 to 48 AD, um, there was a horrible famine, and that it was particularly bad 
for the people living in the territory known as Judea. Um, the Jews there, many Jews died for want of food during this famine. And so we have evidence from outside of the Bible verifying that the events happened just the way Agabus said that they would. Now, how could Agabus do that? How could he make a prediction and it actually come true? I mean, does he have some sort of special power or something? I mean, how could Agabus do this? Well, we know the answer to that. The answer is because Agabus was in contact with, in communication with, the God who knows the future. That's how Agabus was able to make this prediction. I think the fact, friends, that we've got a God who can see tomorrow the way that we see today and the way that we know yesterday, especially given the present circumstances, is a wonderful hope or, or, or something that gives a lot of hope to us. You say, well, why is that? Well, because God has made us some promises, friends, about the future. For example, Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. How about Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God is saying, I've already orchestrated events in your life, surrounding your life, to work together for your good. That's what God promises us. A plan not to harm us, but to give us a future and a hope. Friends, if God is who he says he is, he really can see the future the way we see the past. If God never made a mistake, if God never uh, discovers anything new, if he never miscalculates and never says, oops, right? If this is who God is, then friends, when, we, when, we, when he put together his plan for your life, he did so with absolute knowledge of what is best for you because he can see what's coming down the pipe. And he was able to do this because he knows the future. So when tragedy hits your life, friends, when disappointment comes into your life, when things happen that you don't understand, that you can't explain, things that you don't want, things for the life of you that you're wondering, why in the world is this happening? I don't see how any good can possibly come out of this. Hey, having this information about God is so important because we need to look at those things through the lens of Scripture, which tells us that even though you and I can't see how this could be a part of God's plan for our life or how any good could possibly come from this, the scriptures say that God can see how, that God does see how, in fact, that God already has made sure that it's going to work out for our good. Friends, what we've experienced over the last three years is wonderful uh, flourishing in our economy. Do you think God didn't know that the coronavirus was on its way? Can you imagine if the, if the, if the stock market took a hit the way it took a hit here recently back when the numbers were where they were, and those numbers had just kind of continued to trickle a little bit forward. I mean, things, we, we think it's bad now. It would have been horrible. It would have been horrible um, if those were the circumstances. God is not asking us, friends, to evaluate his plan for our life. He's simply asking us to trust his plan for our life. And friends, when we really believe that, when, we really are, when we're really trusting him that God's promises are true and that he's working through all things for our good, then we can have what Isaiah talks about, Isaiah 26 and verse 3. I emailed that out to y'all earlier this week, that we can get perfect peace. Isaiah writes, you keep in perfect peace those whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. Friends, a God who knows the future is a God in whom we can trust. God saw the coronavirus coming long before anyone got a sniffle. He knew this was coming long before 
or just like he knew the famine was coming long before it was ever identified in the test tube. He has carried you and me through so much. He has prepared us for this time. And friends, he'll carry us through this as well. Friends, there is an eternal God. And he assures us that he has got our life completely under control. And I can tell you that what he's asking of us is not that we evaluate or that we pass judgment on his plans, nor is he willing or waiting for us to decide whether or not we like his plan. Rather, he's asking us to do what the scripture said. He's asking us to trust in him for those who trust in the Lord. He gives perfect peace. It's like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. He said, we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't trust God because we understand it all. We don't trust God because we see it all. We don't trust God because we've got it all figured out. We simply trust God because he's the God who knows the future. You say, Gordon, that's hard to do. <laughs> I agree. It's very difficult to do, especially when you're going through a season where you're going, oh, God, I don't know why, what good's possibly going to come out of this. I've learned, friends, that if I really believe what God tells us, that if we call on the Spirit of God to give us the strength to trust in Him, even when we don't have the strength to trust in Him, friends, if we, can, if we do that, if we call on His Holy Spirit to give us the strength to trust in Him, then we can live this way. We can live this way. We can live by faith. It can be done. And if we'll focus on what God says about Himself and ask God to help us rise above our human feelings of pain and anger and resentment and worry and rather trust him we can live like this we can have perfect peace so if you're here today and you've got things in your life that don't make any sense you've got things in your life that have happened that you just can't seem to possibly find a good plan of god through all of it no matter what it is it just doesn't fit i don't see how it could possibly be for my good friends i'm here to tell you that god knows what he's doing he sees the future like we see the past and he says i'm working out a plan for your good, for your welfare, not to harm you, not for evil, but to give you a future and a hope. That's the God that we serve. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here today, where we ask that you would uh, just take the things which we've heard, that they would be a blessing to us, they would be an encouragement to us, Lord, that we would find hope in knowing that you are, you've got all this, that you saw this coming, it was not a surprise to you. And Lord, you've been working behind the scenes over the last months and years preparing us for this day. And that, Lord, you're going to see us through it. God, we just ask that you would uh, take these quiet moments of communion as we remember your broken body and your shed blood. Lord, may we have hearts of gratitude for what you have accomplished for us, for the work that you accomplished on the cross for us, for the opportunity to have our sins forgiven, to spend eternity with you in heaven. Lord, we give you these quiet moments. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.